Welcome everyone to Full Cast and Crew, a podcast full of all kinds of stuff related to some of the greatest films to come out of the old US of A, whether those are personal independent projects trying to upend the system or a well-wrought bit of popular entertainment that everyone can agree on, whether we sing the praises of its inspired vision or rail against a misbegotten piece of expired tripe, we'll find a way to help you fill in an hour and hopefully make that hour the better for it. So you shied away due to the thematic nature of the movie from a signature Kipiniakian opening this time. Um, you didn't want to choose a racial side and try and defend it or occupy a stereotype or yeah. fighting the power. I mean, or maybe a rap. I, I thought maybe Chris would come in with a rap. Nah, no, no. I thought that <laughs> there's going to be enough of that in there. Okay. That why do it's hard when you're white. Yeah, I suppose. Right. Well, Chris, the occasion that brings us here today is that we are now hard as it is for me to believe because I remember seeing this movie in the theaters in <coughs> 1989. I mean, that might as well be 100 years ago. And horribly, ironically, whatever term you want to use, given the events in the film, it's today as well. Yes. We've really not progressed much as a nation in terms of a lot of the things this movie is about. 30 years ago, Do the Right Thing was released. It was Spike Lee's third film. Mm-hmm. And it was a phenomenon. It was one of those movies that everyone was talking about, everyone was seeing. It was so shockingly different for its time. I think that Spike's previous two movies had been much smaller, had been a little more niche, maybe Sundance favorites, but really hadn't broken out. This film took America by storm, as yes. the lazy say. And we're releasing this on Thursday, June 27th. June 27th, yeah. Because on Sunday, Universal and Criterion are celebrating the 30th anniversary by re-releasing a 4K version of the film in theaters, and the Criterion edition of the film is coming out on Blu-ray. Yeah. Not that they responded to our email requesting pre-release <laughs> access to said cut or Blu-ray. When was the last time you checked your email? Check it now. <laughs> Just make sure. Hey, you know what? I'm of the opinion that the way marketing works today, there's no small markets. There's only small minds that don't yes. think about small markets. So you might say, hey, here's a podcast here. It gets a few thousand downloads per episode. Why should we, Criterion Channel, help them talk about our movie? I think the Criterion Channel needs all the help it can get. Well, they get help from me. I mean, I'm a Criterion Channel subscriber. Yeah. Uh, you, I guess, have not signed up yet. I have not. Huh. It's right up your alley. I'm busy. I'm too busy to, <laughs> to watch all. Too busy to watch movies? Yes. Wow. <laughs> I would love to finally see Orpheus descending. Or is it ascending? Whatever it is. Well, funny you mention that. Have you seen Black Orpheus? That's the great <laughs> film. That's what I, meant. I think that's, that's what, what you're I trying meant. to say? Yes. That uh, film, but no, I haven't seen it. Oh. Well, that's a brilliant film, and that has a direct connection to Do the Right Thing. Oh, yeah? The use of color in Black Orpheus was an inspiration to cinematographer Ernest Dickinson and Spike Lee as they conceived of the visual look for Do the Right Thing. And if you look at the film, sorry, Black Narcissus is the movie I'm talking about. Okay. The use of color in order to let us know that it's hot because this takes place in one day in Bed-Stuy mm -hmm. and the hottest day of the summer. And the way that they visually let us know that is there's a lot of yellows, there's a lot of reds, particularly in the Greek chorus of the three guys featuring the great late Robin Harris, Frankie Faison from mm -hmm. our- Sounds of the Lambs. Sounds of the Lambs episode, thank you. And the other guy, Paul Benjamin. Mm-hmm, as ML. Towering greatness of Paul Benjamin. 
I haven't seen this movie in a long time. I don't remember the last time I watched it all the way through. It, really? I'm, I'm sure I saw it well after 1989, but mm-hmm. I can't really remember when. So I kind of went into it thinking, hey, look, 1989 is a long time ago filmically. I'm not sure if this will hold up in quite the same way. Is it as great as it gets remembered? Yeah. And I was blown away by it. I thought, wow, what an incredible film. What a fully realized film filled with incredible performances. And what really got me this time, which is kind of funny, because I guess if you have a lazy impression of the movie from popular culture, it's like this angry black rights film. And that is an element, but that's by no means the point of the film. Mm -hmm. I think it's got a really nuanced portrayal of everyone. You know, I had the exact opposite experience. I didn't see it in 89 because I was too busy watching Batman. But whenever I saw it at some point in the 90s, but then I did see it again, I think three months ago in Mm -hmm. preparation for our doing Black Klansman. Yes. Just to get in the mood. And when I saw it again, I did have a similar reaction of like, oh my gosh, this is so much better than I remembered. It is respected and loved in many ways. And yet I think something that I often forget, though the last few uh, Spike Lee films that I've seen have been a little bit more out there. Like, Chirac. Sure. In some ways, Do the Right Thing is, I think probably people would argue, is his best movie, but Mm -hmm. it's much odder than a lot of something like Inside Man or Old Boy even. But it's not quite as out there as Chirac. Like it sort of has that balance so perfectly because it's not a Robert McKee Mm -hmm. three-act structure movie. It meanders and it's so strange. But like you said, each character, even Mm. if they've got just like a line or two, are so realized and have so much humanity to them. I loved it and I loved watching it again. And I read something where Spike or... Or Ernest or Giancarlo Esposito were talking about the film and saying that it's a little heightened. It's not like verisimilitude reality. Like it's played a little heightened. It's a little over the top sometimes in the... It's not naturalism. It's not naturalism. Yeah. That's a much better way of saying it. Yet it somehow contains very touching human moments. I laughed out loud many, many times. Yeah. I was reminded of what we were talking about in the Black Klansman episode of Spike's comedic sense of humor and timing. It's just a very funny screenplay. It has the feeling of a movie firmly rooted in his own experiences growing up in Brooklyn in a household where music was obviously a big component. Mm -hmm. When Samuel L. Jackson's DJ character does the roll call and just lists a litany of amazing artists from all different genres of music. He knew the material. He knew what he was talking about. He knew the experience. He himself moved into a neighborhood where they were at first the only black family in an Uh Italian-American neighborhood. And also in 1988-89, you know, as they make reference to in the film, we're living in a time Again, it's stunning the correlation at the very end of Do the Right Thing with the Eric Garner story, which just had a trial here in New York City. Mm -hmm. The use of a chokehold. This one's with a police baton. You know, it's the same thing still happening. Yeah. Which is, in its own way, the point of this movie. But this time around watching, I was really struck by, he just like decided to tell the truth about these characters that Mm -hmm. he knew. Yeah. And he just said, I'm just going to tell the truth of the situation, which is obviously so simple to say, but probably very hard to do in the moment. And I think that's where the things where the movie doesn't pull its punches. It shows racism from the black characters as well as the white characters, Mm -hmm. as well as the Latino characters. It shows that it's a human construct that we just decide to have these things between us and are to varying degrees either aware or blind to them. Mm -hmm. 
Three times in the making of documentary, Danny Aiello is pretty clear that he doesn't think Sal is a racist. Mm -hmm. There's one where they're in a rehearsal scene and he's running through some scenes with Spike and Giancarlo. And it's the first time he's kind of like, is Sal a racist? No, I don't think he's a racist. No, I think he loves everyone and everyone loves him. I based him on a guy I knew in my neighborhood. And he says it again after they're doing the scene where he destroys the radio and his character is yelling racial invective at Radio Rahim and Giancarlo. And he says it again there. But it occurred to me that that's what's kind of great in terms of Spike being a director is like that works for the character. Like, I think that the more accurate statement is Sal doesn't think he's a racist. Yeah. And that's clearly what Danny Aiello believed. And that probably contributed some of that sense of cluelessness, which I think is really important because the other two Italian guys, you have one son who's an overt and committed and fairly Mm -hmm. stated racist in the John Turturro character. And then in Richard Edson's love Richard Edson, he likes the neighborhood. He and Mookie have an understanding. He's not portrayed that way. Yeah. And Sal is kind of that guy who doesn't think he is, which is probably encompasses the majority of white people in America. Right. Who would like to think that they don't harbor these thoughts and beliefs. Mm -hmm. So the nuance of that, I was really impressed with. Well, as well as the fact that, and I think this is related, like you said, that the black characters are not saints. Yeah. That there's not only difficulty with racism that they push against the Korean grocers in the neighborhood. Yes. Or the difficulty that they're causing, like Radio Rahim. The first time he does come in and blasting this stuff. Boy, we've come a long way in electronics. (laughs) I mean, to have to buy 20D batteries for your boombox. Yeah, just imagine how much that must have cost, even in 1989 dollars. But I think each individual character has their sort of flaws or their difficulties. Like, yeah. Mookie is unambitious and yes, like kind of can't not, blame somebody for not wanting him to take a two-hour lunch. And yet at the same time, he's not the best father. And yet at the same time, that doesn't make his point of view any less. That does not mm-hmm. take away from him. And I think that that's what Spike Lee does in the writing of this with all of the characters, that no matter how much you might dislike them or like them at one point, it's never simple and nobody is ever either sainted or villainized so much. And that just makes that ending so much more powerful. It really does. It's weird, you know, the characters are one-dimensional, really, mm-hmm. in, in a lot of ways. Like, we don't see Sal and the sons, like, outside the context of the pizzeria. I want to say pizzeria, the way Sal says it. (laughs) I've never heard that. You never heard that? Except for in this movie. He's so good. We don't see Pino at home, like, being a loving father to his children or something that would give this kind of nuanced dimensionality to it. Yet, I think since Spike is writing something that he so obviously knows, there's a great love for his characters. There's a great love for the environment of the block Mm -hmm. and the day-to-day life. That's where a lot of his great detached sense of humor comes into play. All the ancillary stuff going on around the block is so well done. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, I went into it and I thought, you know, one of the hangups I always have with Spike Lee movie is Spike Lee as an actor always kind of is unsatisfying to Mm. me. And I was like, oh, this is going to be one of those ones where I'm like, I really love the movie, but I wish like someone who really was an actor was playing Mookie. But actually he was great. And oh, yeah. really worked I'm in trying, a way I wasn't expecting. I don't think I've seen any of his movies where he was one of the leads except for this. And I yeah. do think that this is such a perfect part for him. It's a good part for him. That he does do a great job. And it really makes me you know, appreciate like, him as an actor. So that was one of the expectations that I went into that was pleasantly upended. Mm-hmm. And it's also like it's a love letter not only to this block and this slice of black American life, but also to black entertainers, black musicians, black actors it's crazy that you have Ossie Davis and Ruby D, real life married couple, portraying Demayer and mother sister, and Bill Nunn is Radio Rahim, who just passed away, I think, not too long ago. Mm-hmm. So it's so great that as a movie, these performances exist for all time in a well-regarded classic film, you know, that will last forever. People yeah. will watch this movie forever, and these great performers 
And someone who never got a chance to be as great as he could have been, Robin Harris, as a stand-up comedian. If anyone is interested in someone who could have been a major, major star. Really? Oh, yeah. Robin Harris as a comedian in the late 80s was as good as anyone has ever been at handling a large stand-up crowd. And he could do it all. He could do incredible crowd work, hilarious, just picking on people in the front couple of rows and riffing. He could do great quick one-liners, great jokes. And he could also tell amazing stories. And he's very famous for this expanding routine that he used to do called Bebe's Kids, where he was dating a woman who had one child. And she would say, you got to take me and my child to Disneyland. And he would show up and she would have three more children than she had the previous day. Uh And these were Bebe's kids. And Bebe was out of town, downstate, downtown. She was looking after Bebe's kids. And these kids were unruly and wild and would frequently cause incredible amounts of trouble that either made Robin Harris look like a fool or that he had to then get out of. And it was just this very long, hilarious routine. He's just a very unique performer. And he had a really specific voice and confidence. And he died, I think, at 36. Far, far too young. So he's hilarious. And just a couple years after filming this... In 1990. And he was a guy who's going to be slated, like, I think someone was going to make a film out of the Bebe's Kids concept. Well, I think they did make an animated... uh, Uh, Without him. An animated... No, it was... Or using his voices. I take it back. You're right. It came out in 92. Well, maybe they used his routines and animated them. Yeah. And in the credits, it does have him listed as a voice. So they might have started working on it before and perhaps finished it in the time it took. Maybe. Let's play a little of this Greek chorus element. And the red wall that they're sitting in front of oh, is, yeah. is part of that color choice that's used to convey summer. Because it's one of the things you don't think of, like, how do we show that it's hot? Right. <laughs> the mayor, we need your leadership. Doctor, what are you talking about? I'm organizing a boycott of South Famous. Shit. Now keep walking, Doctor. I don't want to hear none of your damn black foolishness. Damn. Juice. No, man. No. No. Hell no, goddammit. Sal ain't never done this to you before, man, and me neither. Hear me? What you ought to do is boycott that goddamn barber that fucked up your head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shit. Hell, come around here fucking with sweet dick with him. Go on, man. Get out of here. Get the fuck out of here, man. Go on, beat it. Oh, so good. Just hilarious. Man, white people were scared when this movie came out. The critics were scared. There were going to be riots in the theaters. All this ridiculous, like, racist takes. Like, black people were going to be so incensed by the ending of the film that they took to the streets and burned down the movie theaters. I was really surprised. Spilled the candy popcorn. I was reading a couple, you know, just sort of grouping together a bunch of the reviews. Yeah. And I guess Vincent Canby in the New York Times was very good to it. Roger Ebert. Ebert was a huge. Loved it. Yep. Uh, But then, surprisingly, David Denby, like you said. The end of the movie is a shambles, and if some audiences go wild, Lee's partly responsible. Jack Kroll in Newsweek called the film dynamite under every seat, which, you know, is is mind-blowing to me. Uh, and because Joel, as Spike had put it, you know, there are all sorts of violent movies, but nobody's worried about yeah, that. It's like, you know, no one gets a bazooka after seeing The Terminator. And yeah, I mean, up. even adjusting for actual politics as opposed to yes. escapist fantasy, it still shows such a low opinion, or well, <laughs> the, another way to put it is almost like a guilty conscience. Well, it's more like, like a spotlight shining on the truth. Like through making the movie, Spike Lee was able to cause these reviewers to come out of hiding and indicate exactly how limited their understanding of these things actually was. 
There's another issue in New York Magazine, the David Denby thing, where he called Lee a commercial opportunist. What does that mean? You're a film director. Isn't that the job? Yeah. And the response to the movie could get away from him. And in the same issue, Joe Klein, isn't Joe Klein like the crazy Democrat who ghost wrote the Clinton book, Primary Colors? That sounds, yes. So he wrote that Spike was a classic art school dilettante and that the message contained a dangerous stupidity. And this is one thing I really remember. This was a movie that, you know, people talked about after you saw the film because the ending left you having this debate with whomever you were with of what it meant. What's the message? What's it telling us to do? And of course, Spike has spent 30 years saying the whole point is not to tell you what to do. The whole point is to just simply present the truth of this scenario involving these characters and to show you that there is no good, easy, pat resolution. Right. And people have debated, you know, when Mookie throws the garbage can through the window, is he actually doing that to save Sal's life and the life Mm -hmm. of his sons because he knows the crowd will attack them physically, so he throws the garbage can through the window so that they instead focus their rage and anger on the pizzeria itself and destroy it as opposed to Sal and his sons who are allowed to stand on a stoop with the mayor. There's uh, an oral history article from the LA Times, I Mm -hmm. think from the 20th anniversary. And what was interesting was they have a section specifically with different cast members and people involved talking about the ending. And do they all have different interpretations of it? You know, I think the author did accentuate that by just picking out like short lines, perhaps if if and, everybody had spoken a little bit more, they might have gotten closer. Well, and also to my Danny Aiello point, I think you have to be cautious reading what actors think about what their characters' motivations are or actions mean, because only the director really knows that. Like, example, you know, Danny Aiello can think that his character's not a racist. Spike Lee knows exactly what his plan is for Sal and yeah. how he interprets the character. There's something they talk about in acting, like, you don't play the end of the scene. That also probably applies for the arc of a character. If Sal starts thinking that he's sort of being like Pino, being sort of comfortable with mm-hmm. his racism. Yeah. There's kind of nowhere to go. But I think there's a sure. tension all the time of his, because, you know, Danny Aiello is not wrong in the sense that he's nice pretty much to yeah. everybody. Yeah. But there's a tension underneath sure. that he as a character is ignoring. Mm-hmm. And so that when it comes to the surface, it's that much stronger. You have the inherent tension that the Greek chorus guys express to the Korean shop owners of a jealousy, a lack of understanding of, to use his phrase, you know, they just got off the boat and a year later they have a business, a good business in our neighborhood in a shop that was abandoned and boarded up. So all these kinds of things are going on in these characters' lives and have much more nuance and complication than you can kind of get to. But the brilliance of the screenplay is how in just accepting them at face value and in that heightened reality, that way that Spike will write things sometimes where it's like, and even uh, Black Klansman is played that way. Yeah, I think I definitely wouldn't think of except for maybe something that's inside man is because it's a crime thing. It it wants to be more sort of naturalistic. Like everything is, like you said, a little bit heightened and stuff. So that it does make that the actual actions that people take Mm -hmm. become that much more important, which is why, just to let me read there five or six little lines about this section is called Always Do the Right Thing and its interpretations of what that means and what the end Mm -hmm. means, according to Spike Lee. To this day, no person of color has ever asked me why Mookie threw the can through the window. (laughs) The only people who ask are white. Edson, who played Vito, I don't think Mookie did the right thing. He did what he felt he had to at that moment, but then did Sal do the right thing by smashing the radio? I think there were a lot of wrong things. Kalik, I'm not not sure who that's referring to. I think that might have been one of the producers. Yeah, John Kulik. Yes. Yeah. He absolutely did the right thing because, whether consciously or not, he directed the anger away from Sal and his sons. He probably saved their lives. None. Mm-hmm. 
I didn't really understand why Mookie did what he did. Sal was doing the neighborhood kids a favor by staying open late. He was trying to do a good thing. <laughs> Who said this? Bill Nunn. Yeah. Esposito. Giancarlo yeah. Esposito. Mookie did the right thing for Mookie, but I think he definitely made a mistake. Rosie Perez, no comment. <laughs> Smart, Rosie. Well, and then Spike Lee said, that's up to the audience. Yeah. Well, there may be a clue because Spike himself says that in an earlier version of the script, the end of the film featured more of a rapprochement between Mookie and Sal. And there yeah. still is one. There is a very light one played at the very end after Sal throws the money at Mookie and they have this moment. It's really two lines. It's kind of something like, what are you going to do now? Just keep making that money. But that's the rapprochement. Yeah. As such as it is. But even Spike says he had a different version in an earlier script, even though once he settled on this, the original studio, they went all the way through pre-production with Paramount as the studio. And then on a Friday, Paramount got cold feet about the ending as we've seen it here and asked him to change it in his version. And Spike is sort of about as trustworthy a narrator sometimes as uh, Terry Gilliam is in his own battles with the studio. He says they wanted me and Danny Aiello to sing We Are the World and And like hug, which I'm sure is not a literal interpretation of what they wanted, but I think they wanted it not to be as incendiary as it can play. But I wonder if, you know, because you said that the original version had, like you said, more of a reconciliation. I wonder if they wanted to go back. Yeah, probably. You know, if it was more like that or if it was sort of too much. I mean, he had that impulse at some point. So it would be interesting because when I first saw the movie, it's not that I found it unsatisfying, but I found it unsettling that reconciliation such as it was because I guess I couldn't wrap my mind around the fact that, hey, listen, Sal stayed open late and it wasn't him Mm -hmm. who killed Radio Rocky. And then the fact that Mookie would go back to ask for, for money. Salary. Yeah. But this is part of the genius of showing everybody warts and all. And it makes sense to me now or it makes yeah. sense to me seeing it subsequent times that it's more about like money is a thing that whatever yeah. other anger and problems like yeah. commerce yeah. is where people kind of do meet. And it's also where power resides. The community is losing its yeah. power and stuff like that because nobody has the capital to start a business yeah. where the Koreans did. And I think that a lot is conveyed by that. In a simplified version, it's like, okay, some people in the neighborhood contributed to burning down Sal's, but I mean, he's going to reopen and like, we're still going to go there and get slices. Yeah. There's that kind of sense too. It's like, yeah, shit happens and you have to kind of move on. But but again, you know, to me, I was like, you know, he says like, I put my heart yeah. and soul into I'm this built. place. That's an amazing scene for Aiello. I mean, Aiello is killer in this. He's Absol- so yeah. good. And yet at the same time, it's like, yeah, he's going to get the insurance money. Yeah, that's what Mookie says. <laughs> Did you read about the uh, sort of unofficial sequel? Well, are you referring to how it's revealed later on that Rosie Perez is the mother of Mars Blackman? I was thinking about how Mookie shows up as a character yeah. in Red Hook Summer. Right. Where he is still delivering pizzas. He's still delivering pizzas. And saying what doesn't happen on screen in that. Sal took the insurance money, reopened another pizza restaurant in Red Hook, and then rehired Mookie. Rehired Mookie, yeah. Agreeing to include black celebrities on his wall of fame. (laughs) Also in Inside Man, the pizzas that are sent to the bank are Sal's pizza. And I didn't know this until looking at the credits. The cop who kills Radio Rahim is played by Danny Aiello's son. Yeah. That guy's kind of amazing. He has an incredible voice. Yeah. He was kind of perfect as this tough white monster cop something you see in some of Richard Price's work that's set in these things, kind of like Clockers referring to that. Yep. You know, last last credit, nobody's perfect in 2016. All right, still doing it. Still doing it. I think one of the more interesting characters is bugging out. And I just want to play the scene here that really the whole thing is both about and not at all about, can we get some brothers on the wall? Mm -hmm. Like that's what bugging out's issue is. And Spike in that making of film, which is really good. Yeah. I recommend people check this thing out. If you just Google the making of Do the Right Thing, there's a really cool shot on film documentary. It's set in the neighborhood. It's gritty. It features people unhappy with the film crew who live on this street. Yeah. Being eloquent about it and being pissed off. One guy's like, the kids can't go 
to the fucking playground because mm-hmm. you're shooting a fucking movie here. Like they should have had a plan. This is their summer. Summer's two months. This right. is eight and weeks. There's this really compelling real life mother sister character who's trying to take care of, I don't know if it's her daughter or her friend who also has a job on the film crew, like sweeping up and picking up. Yeah. She's a self-admitted crack user. And the real life mother sister is like, how about you let me hold $10 a week of your paycheck? That way you won't spend it on. And the woman sheepishly agrees. And then they include this scene where she disappears and loses her job because she got paid and she went and spent the money on crack. And then she comes back at the end and is rehired onto the film. And this really like compelling story in this documentary about the making of the film, which I thought was really, really well done. Yeah. And kind of gave you a sense of kind of like, A, what a pain in the ass and a hassle it must have been to try and occupy this block for literally the whole summer. Right. And build the pizza parlor, which they did. Build the curry and grocery, which they did. As the uh, the production designer was saying, he's like, the greatest compliment we got is that people kept trying (laughs) Trying to to buy buy food from the grocery store. So bugging out's whole issue, and Spike says this in the documentary, he's like, I wanted the character to kind of indicate that a lot of the activism can sometimes be misdirected. Yeah. And is this really the most important issue that in this guy's pizzeria, there's only Italian-Americans on the wall, but that's the catalyst for the whole thing. Although, of course, it's not. It's about something else. It's about his consciousness and sort of not yet being specific enough to target it, perhaps, in a direction that might represent some real change for the neighborhood, right? Although, on the flip side, in the thing you're talking about, I think they do show the pizzeria in Red Hook Summer. I didn't see that either, but I read they show the pizzeria and there are now brothers on the wall. Got it. So, hey, sometimes you got to burn it down to build it back up again. Which, look, (laughs) it's easy to take that point of view from farther away, but when it's your pizzeria, you're like, yeah, you're fucking pissed. <laughs> it's yeah. like, hey, it just burned down. So here's the origination of Buggin' Out's issue. Yo, Mook. A couple of words of time. Okay. Mook. So you know I'm still What? How come you got no brothers up on the wall? Man, ask Sal, right? Hey, hey, Sal, how come you got no brothers up on the wall here? You want brothers on the wall? Get your own place. You can do what you want to do. You can put your brothers and uncles and nieces and nephews, your stepfather, stepmother, whoever you want. You see? But this is my pizzeria. American Italians on the wall only. Take it easy, man. Huh? And you, hey, don't stop with me today. What? Yeah, that might be fine, Sal, but uh, you, you own this. Rarely do I see any American Italians eating in here. All I see is black folks. So since we spend much money here, we do have some set. You looking for trouble? Are you a troublemaker? Is that what you are? You making trouble? Yeah, I'm a troublemaker. I'm making trouble. You're a real ball breaker. Always coming in here looking for trouble, huh? Suppose I busted your head. How would you? Uh, Mookie. Mookie, you want to get your friend out of here? What, are you going to kick me out now? Are you, you going to kick me out, huh? No, I'm not kicking you out. You're kicking yourself out. What? Look, we want some brothers up on the wall, you know? Malcolm X, Nelson Mandela, you know, you're Michael Jordan. Tomorrow. Come on, Mookie, get him out, all right? I'm trying to get him out. I'm paying for I know you paid for it. Let's go. Yeah, all right. All right. So you're kicking me out. Beat me in the head. and going to kick me out, right? Come on, let's yeah, go. okay. Bet. Yeah, all right. Let's yeah, go. look. I paid for my... Look, boycott signs. Let's go. Right? Yo, boycott signs. I got Yo, your move. boycott swing. Boycott signs. Yo, man, pay... What you laughing at? I paid for my slice, man. Yo, man, I spent much money in there. What are you trying to do? What am I trying to do? What are you trying to do? Man, I want some brothers up on the wall, man. man. I got to work here, man. You fucking my shit up, man. man. Give me a sound, man. You fucking me up. I ain't trying try to fuck you up, Moose. You know, I ain't trying to fuck you up. I'm sorry. Great. Yeah. And hanging around outside, man, I love the character played by Roger Gwenver Smith. Smiley. Oh, yeah. Smiley. Smiley. 
Roger Gwenver Smith came up with the character. It wasn't in the screenplay. I don't know if it was Wikipedia or IMDb who had put it that Roger Gwenver Smith was like hounding Spike Lee. Yes. <laughs> like he's like, I want to be in the movie. I want to be in the movie. Finally, they came up with this character. And he was apparently so good, the people in the neighborhood thought he was mentally challenged and treated him deferentially. Yeah. And also, when the incident kicks off at the end, the only people that Bugging Out are able to get on his side are Radio Rahim and Smiling. Mm-hmm. Both of whom who have been portrayed as less than deepest of thinkers, let's say. Yeah. I guess I would put it, it's more that they're people who are just sort of not quite in the mainstream. Well, maybe you have it. Put it. Are they a little too philosophical yeah. or, you know, mentally No, junk. look, they're the kooks of the street. But, you know, it's funny, the scene that we just watched, the end of it, the line that Mookie has is like, yeah. why are you trying to fuck up my shit? Uh, and, which is great. Which is great. And Spike Lee even says in that making of documentary, he was saying like, he characterizes Mookie as being yeah. unambitious, but yeah. also sort of unconscious right. and looking after hey, just selfish. himself. A little bit selfish. He's living for the moment. It's such a great dynamic because you really like Mookie more than bugging yeah. out. And yet, yeah. bugging out's not wrong and no change is ever going to be made without somebody being that kind of difficult. You and know? what's ironic is Giancarlo Esposito is literally an Italian-American. Yeah. He was born in Italy. I think it's his father is black and his mother's Italian or his mother's black and his father's yeah. Italian. So he's like, I'm an Italian-American. They yeah. have a funny little conversation where- Well, because Daniela was saying, he's like, you know, I've been to Italy to yeah. visit yeah. and I don't like it there. Yeah. This is much better. That's why I want to put American first. And he's like, well, you know, I'm an Italian-American. And Giancarlo Esposito talks in the documentary about being other himself. So yeah. he wasn't accepted by the black kids because his name was Giancarlo Esposito. Mm-hmm. He wasn't accepted by the white kids because he was black to them. Right. He wasn't accepted by the Italians because he wasn't Italian enough to them. Right. And it's funny. He says in the thing, he's like, you know, I never played a B-boy before. So he's one of those characters that's kind of a caricature, but ends up playing the most serious of roles. Right. And everybody loved Radio Rahim. When Bill Nunn passed away, there was so much like Radio Rahim love. What is it about that character? There's something so pure about like he's just walking around with the music and that's the one thing he likes and he's just doing that. Bill Nunn about said himself that Raheem to him is just a guy so in love with his music and his culture that he wants to impose it on others. I want to play this love and hate clip because it's his longest speech in the film. It's such a spikely scene. It's funny. It's deep. It's touching. It's got so much black history going on just in this conversation and in what they're wearing and what's playing on the soundtrack. This is Mookie running into Radio Raheem and getting into the very famous love and hate speech. Where are you headed to? You're going down to South? I got to make some deliveries and I'll check you back there, right? All right. Oh, shit. Let me check it out. That's the hype. Lewis latest. Let me tell you the story of right hand, left hand. It's a tale of good and evil. Hey. It was with this hand that Cain iced his brother. Love. These five fingers, they go straight to the soul of man. The right hand, the hand of love. The story of life is this. Static. One hand is always fighting the other hand. And the left hand is kicking much ass. I mean, it looks like the right hand love is finished. But hold on, stop the presses. The right hand's coming back. Yeah, he got the left hand on the ropes now. That's right. Yeah. Ooh, it's a devastating right and hate is hurt. Down. Ooh, ooh, left hand hate KO'd by love. If I love you, I love you. But if I hate you, there it is, love and hate. 
So good, man. You know, we talked before in Black Klansman that Spike Lee is just uber film nerd of the Mm -hmm. highest order. He's a huge Charles Lawton fan. Oh, wow. And Night of the Hunter, this speech is largely lifted verbatim from Robert Mitchum's character in Night of the Hunter, who has the love and hate tattoos. Yeah, all right. So Spike took that and as a student of film history, dropped that into Radio Rahim and it changed it from the tattoos to the knuckle ring versions of love and hate. Right. And the monologue is essentially the same. Wow. And I think Rahim is also presented as like, a little psycho, a little crazy, a little intimidating. Everyone's afraid of him. Whenever he shows up, he commands ultimate respect, but it's fear. Right. I mean, he's a big guy. He's a big guy. He's, he's also imposing. a little bit off. There's a funny scene, I think, where I think it's Mookie Gaskins like, man, do you ever listen to anything other than Public Enemy? He's like, I like Public Enemy. I think it's bugging out. And he says like, well, oh, that's you right. know, there's yeah. plenty of other black music. He's yeah. like, I don't like anything else. <laughs> I remember hearing this song for the first time in 1989 and just being like, what is that? It's still just such a powerful track composed by Public Enemy for the movie. Everybody remembers hearing for the first time, Elvis was a hero to most, but he never meant shit to me. Mm -hmm. Straight out racist. Sucker was simple and plain. Motherfuck him and John Wayne. That is such a incendiary great line. I've read a fair amount about Elvis. I wouldn't characterize him as a racist. I think it's more a of-the-moment, inflammatory, provocative lyric, which gets at, yes, that white musicians for hundreds and hundreds of years have co-opted black music and had greater success with it in front of a larger audience than black artists have. So that part I get. But I mean, if you read anything about Elvis, he's not a hate-filled person. Right. It's an intentionally provocative lyric, which works. When you hear that churning beat and that urgency, you could imagine that scaring the shit out of Paramount Film Executives. Oh, yeah. Film executives of like, what is going to happen when we play this movie? Even though it ends on the most like slow jam, late 80s, like syrupy electronic drum love track by Al Jarreau. Uh So if you want to read into the messaging, love is the final message even though it's a romantic love in the song. Yeah, listen, man, love is love is love. I guess. Also, Raheem gets the Jaws shot that we discussed. Remember the shot? Oh, the pull, pull back, pull back, push in. Push and pull. He gets that shot in this movie. Is it the first time he comes in? The first in? time where they yell, turn that shit off. He gets that shot. Yeah. Full casting crew is brought to you by Out of Jack's Mind, a new comedy short video series from Jack Plotnick, co-writer and director of the Sony Pictures feature film Space Station 76, and current recurring guest on Grace and Frankie and Z Nation. Out of Jack's Mind, like and follow at Chuckler Comedy on Facebook or Chuckler.com. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. It came up again in the Oscars this year because Do the Right Thing famously never won an Oscar. Danny Aiello was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, and it was nominated for Best Original Screenplay. Screenplay. Mm -hmm. And didn't win either. It's crazy that it wasn't nominated for Best Picture, or he wasn't nominated for Best Director. Right. To use Spike's term, he's quoted in New York Magazine, when driving Miss Motherfucking Daisy won Best Picture. That's how he refers to Uh it. I think it still hurts. This was on the occasion of the 25th anniversary of the movie. Driving. Every couple of you get a little bit more of the story. So just think about this. You have Samuel L. Jackson in Do the Right Thing in 1989 as Senior Love Daddy. You have it snubbed at the Academy Awards. Fast forward to 2019, Samuel L. Jackson is presenting the Screenplay Award. Yes. Which goes to Green Book, which might have well been written by Pino. Mm-hmm. 
And if you look at the clip, you can see Samuel Jackson is not pleased to be right. handing the Oscar to the screenwriters of Green Book. Of course, Spike did win, finally. Right. It's just crazy when you think about it. Both Black Klansman and Do the Right Thing are the only two Spike Lee films that have been in competition at Cannes for the Palm right. d'Or. That also did not win there, yeah. but I believe it did win. Another. It did, that's right. Yeah. Black Klansman is so funny because it came out in the summer of 2018 and then didn't really get any critical momentum really until the Oscar push kind of came back. It might have also been almost in response to Green Book, you know, because I think uh, we talked a little yeah. bit about how the two just dealt with race relations in such opposing ways. That might have been also part of the love. People were like, yeah. oh, what was that, that other movie? You know, that that actually had something to say. It's such a good tell when anyone comes up to you and is like, I really liked Green Book. Yeah. I have an answer. You know how like when you go to the theater a lot, you probably have this. I learned this from my wife who recently guested on the pod. When she was working at a summer theater festival, we would go to so many shows right. that she explained to me that you need to have your stock response when you go to something that's really <laughs> awful, but has someone in it who you really like. And you need to think about this because I'm the kind of person, if I sit through like two hours of theater and it's terrible, I'm like deeply affected in my conversational abilities. Right. I'm like, I'm stunned and shocked and angered and I feel I'm resentful and I, I have a hard time faking a positive reaction. Right. And she explained to me like, you need to have your go-to phraseology. That's like, you were so good, you know, delivered in that way. And I'm like, right. But if you do that, don't you all know when someone's giving you that line? Well, that's why you shouldn't, you know. And she really? said, oh, you they don't care. saying this on a podcast because somebody's going to hear it. just breaking a theater rule. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like not, not saying Hamlet? Uh, Macbeth, you mean the... Uh, whatever. Whatever. Don't say Hamlet either, frankly. <laughs> Hamlet is done. Didn't Keanu do Hamlet in Canada? I mean, Definitive, yes. I think. I heard. <laughs> anyway, let's <laughs> not go on a Keanu song. Um, Amanda's point was, they don't care. They're just like so psyched that someone's praising them. It doesn't even matter if it's true or not. I mean, I guess I'd put it a little differently. It's like, <laughs> why look a gift horse in the mouth, kind of? And like, <laughs> look, you came, you showed up, you sat through it. It's fine. Green Book was a great film. <laughs> I even meant within this, like oh. everybody's, you know, sort of lying, you know. Everyone's lying to themselves. I also, did you notice the Black Panther comic oh, book? Oh, yes. That was <laughs> And cool. a couple mentions of like Black couple Panther would kick Black his Panther ass. Panther later, later, yeah. Uh, gentrifier. First of all, gentrification. Yeah. You know, but happening a lot earlier. I guess I think of like the Brooklyn oh, no. Renaissance. It's, it's been going on forever. Ever since the pilgrims were here, there's been gentrification. I mean, <laughs> I mean yeah, that certainly is. was. That's how they got here. I guess I meant like, specifically hey, that a beautiful piece of land by the river. Let's go live there. I, I meant specifically. Well, some people Brooklyn. happen to be living there right now. Well, we'll take that. You know how we were talking about the Jaws description that Frank had read from yes, Nighthawk for Jaws? Now, I remember the first time I saw the landlord at Film Forum, and they had a little description <laughs> of it. Uh -huh. And what was funny was this was sometime in the early 2000s, like when whatever jokes you could make about Park Slope. As, yes. Because that's where. The landlord takes place. Right. And it was saying like in a weirdly pre-gentrification park slope, which yeah. was amazing to then see the movie. I'm like, oh my gosh, just imagine this same urban blight, but put a couple strollers there and a coffee <laughs> shop. And that's today. Well, that cues up one of my all-time favorite scenes in Do the Right Thing is the brilliantly costumed gentrifier played by John Savage <laughs> with his mountain bike, his Larry Bird t-shirt, and of all the characters to inadvertently bump into and smudge the sneakers of, right. of course, it's bugging out. Yo! Yo! Yeah! 
you almost knocked me down, man. The word is excuse me. Ah, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry. Not only did you knock me down, you stepped on my brand new Fuck white Air Jordans that I just bought. And that's all you can say is excuse me. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm serious. I fucked you up quick two times. Two times? Who told you to step on my sneakers? Who told you to walk on my side of the block? Who told you to be in my neighborhood? I own this brownstone. Who told you to buy a brownstone on my block in my neighborhood on my side of the street? Yo, what you want to live in a black neighborhood for anyway, man? Motherfuck gentrification. Well, as <laughs> I understand it, this is a free country. Man can live wherever he wants. Free country? Man, oh I should fuck you up for saying that stupid shit alone. Yo, man, your Jordans are fucked up. Damn, man. You might as well throw them shits out. Them shits, it's broke. Man, they looked at the good before he messed up. He did this shit on purpose, man. He was even talking about your mom. Oh, I heard that shit to me. Yo, man, how much you pay for him? A hundred bucks. American dollars. A hundred and eight with tax. I give him a hundred headaches. Look, you lucky the black man has a loving heart. Next time you see me coming, man, you cross the street quick. I'm out of here. Yo, man, bring his feet. Take his dollars. I should make you buy me another pair. Black Panther, who is that? Take his bike. Man, you're lucky I'm a righteous black man. Otherwise, you'd be in serious trouble, man. Serious. Fuck him up. Then why'd you move back to Massachusetts? I was born in Brooklyn. That is so good. Apparently, Spike gave Giancarlo the director's note. He's like, you're talking too fast, man. You got to you got to saw it. And he's like, that's how bugging out talks. <laughs> he's bugging out. John Savage is so good in that. What's deft about it is it shows from John Savage's white perspective. He's surrounded by young black people and mixed race people in front of his own stoop. And this interaction for him takes this ominous turn where he's like, oh, shit. Like, mm-hmm. Now, we know that bugging out is just kind of like wolfing at him. He's not really going to attack him or physically assault him. But it's so brilliantly played because you look at John Savage's face and he's sort of like, oh, shit. And when that guy who's brilliant in the Lakers jersey, that guy cracked me up so many times in the fucking movie. the blue one? The yes. Blue, that's the, yeah. It's punchy. <laughs> that fucking guy is so hilarious. He's a fucking instigator. Oh, my he God. Wants, and he as wants an instigator. Yeah. I respect a good instigator. He's always just and then, throwing gasoline on the fire. So fucking which funny. Which is when the uh, final scene at Sal's, that same group of four kids yeah. are the ones who get him to stay open late. Yes. And he comes yes. in like, please, please, please. And then he's like, yes. yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> this <laughs> sucks. Wait, so Punchy is the other guy. Oh, maybe it's Steve White. Yeah, Leonard L. Thomas is the guy who comes over his shoulder and says $108 with tax. Oh, okay. So I think Steve White is a mod. Because I think it's a mod, a mod. Punchy and um, first film appearance of Martin Lawrence. You know, I think of this scene with the mayor when that's, again, this same group of instigators. That's also the guy who turns on on the mayor cruelly. And truthfully, you know, that's another one of these nuanced scenes. It's very well written because, yes, on the surface, it's cruel to kick this old, drunk, seemingly homeless man while he's down. Mm -hmm. Yes. But on the other hand, the comments that the kid is making in attacking him indicate both kind of the truth of the matter and also like the consciousness of the kids that they're thinking this way. You know, the mayor says, you don't know what it's like to wake up and hear your five hungry babies screaming. And the guy's like, and as to your babies, you're right. I don't know, because if that happened, I would go out and get a job and I would feed them. There's a sense of responsibility that he's advocating for. Even as, yes, he's I mean, as, grandstanding. As cruel, and, and, you it, know, again, we don't know what that kid's life is like. And you, know, you can say a cruel thing like that 
You know, like I said, he doesn't know his truth until you're there. Anybody can say like, I would do whatever I could to get a job. Yeah. But well, it shows both his lack of life experience and his idealism in a way. And it's about the gulf that exists between the ages here. Yeah. So you have the mayor and mother sister who are of an age where when the shit starts to go down, they have very different reactions than everybody else on the block does. Yes. And when bugging out, as we heard in the earlier clip, tries to recruit everyone for the Sal's boycott, the mayor doesn't want any of that. Yeah. And Ruby D's reaction is just chilling and haunting Look, when I, she's just know, screaming, no, 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 no. I'm sorry that Green Book <clears throat> keeps coming up, but I remember so specifically, but was it Harry Belafonte who wrote the letter about Green Book? Yes. There is a generational gap and difference between yes. your experiences of yes. where you are and how you, I don't know, see the future yeah. moving forward. And I guess on the backs of an earlier generation, these younger kids mm-hmm. are able to dream bigger or have a different sense of themselves as individuals. And yeah. that's another truth that's in there. Just to show a little of uh, how great Ossie Davis and Ruby D were here, they're just lend such an interesting thing to the movie. Hey, you old drunk. What did I tell you about drinking in front of my stoop? Move on, you're blocking my view. You are ugly enough. Don't stare at me. The evil eye doesn't work on me. Mother sister, you've been talking about me for 18 years. What I ever done to you? You are drunk fool. Besides that, the mayor don't bother nobody. And nobody don't bother the mayor, but you. The mayor just tend to his own business. I love everybody. I even love you. Hold your tongue. You don't have that much love. One day, you're going to be nice to me. We may both be dead and buried, but you're going to be nice. At least civil. And of course, at the end, they do have a... Right. What's the word? Rapprochement? Do we say it like Rapprochement? Frank? Rapprochement? That sounds too pretentious. Can you say reprochment? You absolutely I mean, I know could. I can say it over, I'm just saying. Just uh, tell me if it's like, I've never, I've never heard it, it except for uh, rapprochement. I can't say that. That's like calling an actor an instrument. Uh, here's a slight bone to pick with great director Spike Lee. In all his movies, he has the soundtrack playing under so much dialogue. Mm-hmm. Does that bother you? This is a great example in that scene. The score is perpetually playing under almost all the dialogue scenes. It drives me crazy. Yeah. I mean, in general, I, I sort of don't like too much music yeah. in movies. I think it bothered me less here, maybe because there was so much of Radio Rahim and people like playing yeah. radios outside that I yeah. would just sort of assume that it was no, I don't that, mind the but. incident on music. Just like that's a great example of like, there's a funny scene between two great yeah. actors and And there's this like kind of present music, not just like background music, but like this present score going on. It's a thing. Also in that scene, you can see the uh, Dutch angles, Mm -hmm. which are used increasingly throughout Do the Right Thing. And going back to the film nerd thing, Ernest Dickerson, who's probably shot every Spike Lee movie, as far as I know, going way back. I think they met at NYU. And he said that, you know, before they would work on a film, they would have these movie watching sessions to kind of talk about what looks they wanted, what colors they wanted. As we mentioned, Jack Cardiff, who was the DP on Black Narcissus, used these incredible colors. And that's what inspired a lot of this that you can even see there, just sort of like these large swaths of color. Right. And the angles came from The Third Man, classic Orson Welles, 1949 right. noir. 
And all those Dutch angles, they watched it and they said, you know, we saw how it created tension. So when you're watching, everything's slightly off. Things get rougher and do the right thing. And we have more tilted angles as we get there just before the riot. Yeah. As Dickerson says, it's kind of like a world that's going out of balance. Yeah. You know, that reminds me when watching it last night, there were the moments where there were a couple crane shots yeah. where, they, where it would back away that were so sort of, I almost made the neighborhood look idyllic. Yeah. And it almost seemed like the opposite of, yeah. of that. Like as if showing like, here's a place that actually mm-hmm. that there is life and beauty on this street for whatever yeah. other problems there are yeah. so that it can then get skewed in the way that you were saying it. Well, Spike said, you know, he's he, in the movie, he wanted to show the real lives of impoverished people of color right. in this neighborhood and to not gild the lily and just kind of show it as it was. Yeah. Of course, in that documentary we're talking about, there's a lot of funny quotes from people in the neighborhood that are sort of like, the neighborhood never looked this clean as the filmmakers had to make yeah. it. Now you can see even in the mother sister shot behind you, like there's still decay on the building. It's not idealized. But it's artful it's decay. Artful. It's artful. Yes. Done. One of the criticisms of the film that I was reading was like that it completely ignores drugs. Yeah. And you know, this is 89. This it's is true. right at the right end. The crack. Either at the height or just after the height of the yeah. crack epidemic. But on the other hand, you know, that's the director makes what they want to make and includes what they yeah. want to include. And there's already so much in here mm-hmm. about race relations, even without that. And uh, yeah, it's interesting. And it Didn't also really... happened, you know, and, and one thing that I was reading about was where it came out in 89. He started working on it in 87 around the time, like he said, like now, where there had been a lot of racially motivated, violent mm-hmm. incidents in New York. Well, uh, the Eleanor Bumpers. Eleanor Bumpers, Michael Stewart, and um, Howard, Howard Beach. Beach. Yeah, which uh, are chanting at the end. Yes. And Howard Beach was an inspiration because that involved four young black men whose car broke down and ended yeah. up wandering into Howard Beach, which is an Italian-American enclave, and having an interaction with some Italian-American teenagers, and then going to a pizza parlor and having a meal and then being approached by a gang of Italian-American youths, including, including the, the teenagers the teens they had before, a problem yeah. with. And one of them chased one of the kids onto the highway where he was hit by a car and killed. Yeah. And so at the end of Do the Right Thing, you hear the Howard Beach chant. Yeah, that's very much the environment's going on here. I think that the drugs thing is an interesting omission, if you want to call it that. Maybe it just would have been kind of a further complication that isn't really required given what the subject matter is here, which is really more about the ways in which human beings find to create difference from each other and use it to remain divided as opposed to doing the right thing and loving one another and coming together. Yeah, I agree that I think it might, might have just been too much and there's yeah. already, already I didn't so much going on. And what about that? I'd be what, curious right to see thing. if he's ever been asked that. I actually, yeah, no, I haven't, I haven't read funny his response. Yeah, I didn't think about um, that. Because this is so much about race. I found this quote from Stephen Park, the actor who oh, played Sonny. I'm so glad you brought him up. The quote was, in the script I had, my character was known as Korean clerk. And when Ginny Yang, <laughs> who played my wife and I, were called to the set on Walkie Talkie, we were referred to as the Koreans. Yeah. That really bothered me, especially considering the film dealt with race relations. Mm-hmm. So I told Spike that I wanted my character to have a name. I mentioned my Korean name is Sun Q, at which point Danny said, Sonny, I'll call you Sonny. It was a mini Ellis Island moment, and it meant a lot to me. <laughs> Which, again, I thought was great because, you know, people yeah. have their sort of blind spots or their things of, like, I'm telling this story, and I guess blind spot is kind of the, the best word for it. Well, Steve Park is another brilliant stand-up comic who had a very famous incident when he was a guest star on Friends, which he also, at the time, kind of spoke about, which was that he was between scenes, and there was another Asian-American actor, and he overheard an AD call the actor to the set by saying, like, by botching his name a few times and then finally just saying, get the Oriental guy. Mm. And that 
kind of indicator for him. Like we just don't have a lot of this representation, which I, which you know now we're kind of in this moment where we're having some kind of Asian American representation and other types of representation in these films that's kind of addressing these things that he was talking about long ago. And you know how people talk about the great film cameos? Like they'll say like, well, Alec Baldwin and Glenn Gary, Glenn mm-hmm, Ross mm-hmm. is like maybe the greatest cameo of all time. And it's certainly up there. But Stephen Park as Mike Yanagida in Fargo, for me, is pound for pound, line for line, scene for scene, acting wise, I think it's the greatest cameo in the history of cinema because it's deeply hilarious. It's equally as deeply disturbing for reasons you can't quite put your finger on and aren't really given all of the facts and details until after the scene when she's talking about having had an odd interaction with Mike Yanagida. And someone, I can't remember, says... He never married that woman who, he, you know, he tells her that his wife died. Yeah, yeah. And someone says, like, oh, he didn't marry her. No, he he was harassing her. And, like, she had to get a restraining order against him. Anyway, this scene, uh, which I'm not playing the entirety of because it's four minutes long, but just Google Fargo Mike Yanagita. But we have to right. play a little. Sure. Well, what about you, Mike? Are you married? You got kids? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh... I was married. Uh, I was married to... You mind if I sit over here? Uh, I was married to Linda Cooksey. No, why don't you sit over there? I prefer that. Huh? Oh. Uh, okay. Sorry. Oh, uh, no, no. Just so I can see you. Don't have to turn my neck. Oh, sure, sure. I, I understand. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't mean to... Uh... No, no. That's fine. Um, so, uh, I was married to Linda Cooksey. You, you remember Linda? She was a year behind us. Yeah, I think I remember. Yeah. yeah. She, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, it didn't work out, huh? Oh, and, then I, and then I've been working for Honeywell for a few years now. Oh, well, they're a good outfit. Yeah, if you're an engineer, yeah, you could do a lot worse. But it's uh, not, it's nothing like your, your achievement. Well, it sounds like you're doing really super. It's not that, uh... It's not that things didn't work out. It's, uh, uh Linda, uh, had leukemia, you know. She was, uh, she, she passed away. No. Uh, it was tough. Uh, I know. It was long, uh, she fought real hard, Mark. You know, uh, that's, well, what can you say? Better times, huh? Better times. Oh, and then I saw you on the TV, and uh, I remembered, you know, I always liked you. Well, I always liked you. I always liked you so much. So, Mike, uh, should we get together another time, you think? No. That is a master class in acting between the two of them. Her subtle shift of realization, this guy's insane, is so perfectly done. He is brilliant. And him brilliant. subtly showing that he's insane. Oh my God, the subtle reveal. Yeah. That scene is absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And he does a great job in Do the Right Thing. The Korean couple and their son, like they're pretty broadly characterized like everybody else is. Yeah. His fractured English that he uses in Do the Right Thing is so brilliant yeah. when he's swearing at people or trying to swear. There's the great scene when Radio Orhim is trying to buy 20 D-cell batteries and he's like, D, motherfucker, D. And Stephen Park curses him back out and he gets Radio Rahim the only time in the whole yeah. movie 
he gets Radio Raheem to laugh. And Radio Raheem's like, you're, you know what? You're all right, man. You're all right. Yeah. Like, he likes that he's giving it back. Uh, and then, the, you know, when the riot is beginning and his uh, yeah. attempt talking to, is uh, it Slick Dick? No, no it's, uh, it's um, ML, who sort of wants to take out their frustration yeah. on the Korean. And he said, like, yeah, Paul I'm, Benjamin. I'm black. Too. Yeah. Like, I'm like you. And it's a great scene because you see scene, him trying yeah. to, yeah. yeah, like I said, with having the, both the fractured English, the fear. There's already a <laughs> one business uh, that's been smashed up. Well, there's the scene with the Greek chorus where Paul Benjamin's character really lays out that whole concept, which was such a thing and remains such a thing of people owning businesses in yeah. black communities that aren't themselves black. I bet you they haven't been off the boat a year before they open up their own place. That's right, man. It's been about a year. Motherfucking year off the motherfucking boat and they already got a business in our neighborhood, a good business, occupying a building that had been boarded up for longer than I care to remember. And I've been here a long time. Well, he's been here a long time. Here, <laughs> and now for the life of me, you know, I can't figure this out. Either of them Korean motherfuckers are geniuses. Are you black asses are just plain dumb? Fuck you. It's got to be because we are black. Ain't no other explanation. No, no, I know, man. You, you know, ain't they always trying to keep the black man to be about shit? I'm saying, motherfuckers, hold this shit down. Tired of hearing that old excuse. Tired of hearing that shit. I tell you, I swear, man. I will be one happy fool when we open our own business right here in our neighborhood. I swear to God. I will be the first in line to spend what little money I got right there with you, man. You motherfuckers always talking that old Keith Sweat shit. I'm going. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. You ain't going to do a goddamn thing. You ain't going to sit your monkey ass on this corner. Hey, M.L., when are you going to get your business? Huh? Yeah, just like I thought, you ain't going to do a goddamn thing. But I tell you what I'm going to do. Hear me? I'm going to go over there and get them Koreans some more of my money. The fuck out my way. Goddamn, it's Miller time, motherfucker. Old moose head fuckers tell me what to do. And coconut, you got a lot of damn nerve. You got off the boat too. Yeah, you get along. Shoot. Hey, come fu! Come give me one of them damn beer, damn it. What? Get your ass in there, sir. No more free beer. Hey man, no more free beer. I'll drop it. Don't start no shit with me. That's right. Sweet Dick Willie, my name. That's my name. It's a motherfucking shame. Great scene. Yeah. So many complicated things that go on there. And um, Stephen Park's little throwaway half dialogue you can hear at the end where he's Sounds like, like he's been extending credit. Well, he's no more free beers. But also just like, hey, man, like he's using yeah. the wrong terms at the wrong time because he's obviously picking up English. Like, yeah. it's just, God, he's so good. I love him. What they talk about in that scene, seeing it last night, uh, I looked at the ending very mm-hmm. differently even, especially also mm-hmm. about reading the different people's reactions yeah. to what Mookie throwing the, mm-hmm. the can through the thing is. And I guess so So much of it, and again, this is also looking at it in 2019, things that Spike Lee seemed mm-hmm. to be conscious of in 1989, amazingly, um, <laughs> is how the rage that Mookie feels has more to do with the system yeah. around that allows other people to come into their neighborhoods mm-hmm. and build these businesses. And, you know, and again, whatever Sal's sense of ownership mm-hmm. and whatever, whether he's nice or not nice, whatever, doesn't matter so much, but he has this opportunity that the people in the community don't have. And so that that anger is so much more about the system that they are trapped in, which is why the next day Mookie is able to go back and be like, and actually, like I said, when I first 
thought I was like, wow, you got some fucking stones yeah, to like smash the place, <laughs> burn it down, and then and go then the next day and ask for 200 bucks. Yeah. And yet looking at it through that lens, through the kind of anger and frustration that they were articulating there, it becomes much more about that. And what else is there kind of to smash? And, you know, as, as people said, it's a hell of a lot better than actually doing violence against Sal and his, his yeah. sons. Yeah, I mean, I think in this scene that we just watched, I think the Paul Benjamin character is giving voice to what you're talking about. Yeah. I think that the Robin Harris character, and to a lesser extent, the Frankie Faison character, Robin Harris is excited just to be able to go across the street and get an ice cold beer and to work them for some credit until they sort of cut them off. Right. Interestingly, it's Paul Benjamin's character at the end who kind of has the realization not to attack the Koreans. Like he's at the front of the mob that's about to go get them next. Mm -hmm. And someone's talking to him, but he has a moment where he goes kind of against what he just says in that Right, it's not like somebody holds him back. Yeah, no, he comes to his own. Kind of comes to his own realization about it. And I think that Mookie scene with Sal is is you're right. I saw that too. And maybe just being older now, watching it, like Aiello's speech is so great about having literally built it with his own hands. The privilege that he has is being white, but he's been in the neighborhood thirty years. Mm -hmm. You know, he's been in the neighborhood since before it was this neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Like it used to be his neighborhood. The way it's presented in the movie is this neighborhood has shifted and changed, and the Italian Americans have moved out, and the the black people and the other people of color have moved in. That's the age old story of gentrification. And so I think watching it now, you sort of see the callousness of Mookie's audacity and going back and asking to be paid after literally being the person causing the entire restaurant to burn to the ground. And the realist of saying, man, you're going to be fine because you've got insurance. Right. And both of those are true. Yes. Let's go on to alternative casting. Yes. Put that one back. Can I lead it off? Yeah, there's only one I mean, that I knew about. Right. It's a great one. I saw two. Uh, the first one is, of course, that Robert De Niro <laughs> was Spike Lee's first sure. choice to play Sal. Yes. Which, do you think he would have still had Robert De Niro's uh, headshot up on the wall? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's probably a nice little shout out to De Niro yes. declining to do it. But yes, but did, and De Niro apparently read the script and said he liked it very much and didn't give much more of a reason except that it wasn't I don't think him. it's for me. I agree. I think Spike says now he agrees it would have overwhelmed to the rest of the movie to have a star of that caliber in it. I think Danny Aiello is pitch perfect. Perfect. Danny Aiello always embodies that niceness. Mm -hmm. He's not the type of Italian-American actor who embodies a heaviness or a thuggishness, but he can. But you like him. He's a likable, avuncular presence. And they use that to great effect in this movie. Yeah. Of course, De Niro at the time could have done anything. Right. Yeah, most of the other stuff I saw was just kind of like shifting things around. Like I saw that Lee originally wanted Bill Nunn, who plays Radio Rahim, to Mm -hmm. play Mr. Senor Love Daddy, but later figured out that he should be Rahim. Yeah, I wonder if it was because he then cast Samuel Jackson and was like, well, I got to put him somewhere, or did he then come up with the idea of Radio Rahim? You know, I don't know. I know Samuel L. Jackson wasn't a thing then. Right, yes. He wasn't Samuel L. Jackson. And I can remember seeing this movie and just... It's pre-Samuel L. Jackson. So you're just like, yeah, there's a guy playing the radio DJ. Yeah. Now it's just so funny to think, like, my God, (laughs) 400 movies later. Yeah. Matt Dillon actually turned down the role of Pino. Oh, I didn't see that. Which I thought was funny. I don't really know Matt Dillon, whether he has any Italian in him. Yeah, he could Uh, play the part. But he certainly has played But not as good as Turtle. And Spike said that he saw a movie called Five Corners. Sure. Which I don't know. But uh, in that, apparently, John Turturro beats a penguin to death and throws his mother (laughs) out away window. Uh-huh. And so he's like, that's the energy that's that I the energy want. I need. Well, uh, Totoro is so good and contains that rage so well. 
normal and yet is sort of ridiculous in the right way. Yes. You know what I mean? Like he's so confident as to be ridiculous. I think I've seen a lot of John Turturro and a lot of things that I didn't always necessarily love him because with that, let's say ridiculousness would sort of overpower what I think is meant to be more realistic. And yet something like this, something like his performance in The Big Lebowski. Well, The Lebowski is one for me goes over the top. But it's in an over the top movie and maybe that that it's by having a big thing like that. And even this, because as we said, this is not a naturalistic thing. Right. So he doesn't seem out of place. He doesn't seem too big. He doesn't seem as out of place as his brother Nick does in Black Klansman playing a (laughs) redneck Southern racist Ku Klux Klan member (laughs) with the deepest accent I've ever heard in a movie. Everybody's got a backstory, you know, you know. How did that like, guy get there? What that's is, a question. Um, uh, therein some, lies a tale. If we ever go to a Q&A, that's going to be my first question <laughs> to Spike. Spike, can you tell me what the hell the backstory is of Nick Turturro's character in Black Klansman? Because <laughs> I can't figure it out. Anyway, let's play a little Pino here. This leads into the classic scene that the movie kind of really became known for for a while was this racial insult scene. Yes. But I find the scene just prior to it much more interesting where Spike uses this moment to kind of call Pino out on something that is as much a truism of white culture and white racists as anything you could pick. Pino, who's your favorite basketball player? Magic Johnson. Who's your favorite movie star? Eddie Murphy. Who's your favorite rock star? Prince. You're Prince Ross. Bruce. Prince. Bruce. Pino, all you ever talk about is nigga this and nigga that. And all your favorite people are so-called niggas. It's different. Magic, Eddie, Prince are not niggas. I mean, they're not black. I mean, let me explain myself. They're, they're not really black. I'm, I mean, they're black, but they're not really black. They're, they're more than black. It's, it's, it's different. It's different? Yeah, to me, it's, it's different. You know, deep down inside, I think you wish you were black. Get the fuck out of here. Laugh if you want to. You know, your hair is kinkier than mine. What does that mean? And you know what they say about dark Italians? You know, I've been listening and reading. You've been reading now? I read. I've been reading about your leaders, Reverend Al, Mr. Do, Sharp Tone, Jesse. Keep hope alive. That's fucked up. Keep hope alive. Hey, that's fucked. Don't talk about Jesse. And uh, even uh, the other guy, what's his name? Uh, Farrakhan. Farrakhan. Uh, Minister Farrakhan. All right, sorry. Minister Farrakhan. Anyway, Minister Farrakhan always talks about the so-called day when the black man will rise, we will one day, what does he say, we will one day rule the earth as we did in, in our glorious past? Yeah, that's right. What past are you talking about? I mean, what, what did I miss? We started civilization. Man, keep dreaming, man. Then you woke up. Pino, fuck you, fuck your fucking pizza, and fuck Frank Sinatra. Yeah? Well, fuck you too, and fuck Michael Jackson. That's such a great scene. And Totoro gets exactly at what you're talking about there. It's slightly over the top. His self-delusion. Yeah. How he shows that. That's so fucking good. Yeah. It's how do you really do that? fantastic. You know? I don't know what it is. I mean, if anything, it's sort of like what we were saying about Danny Aiello yeah. being so convinced. Like, this guy, then a racist bone in his body. Yeah, but the There's Danny a self-delusional. Aiello, I think Danny Aiello actually thinks that about his character. I think John Turturro, and listening to him in the doc, is so smart. He yeah. doesn't think that about his character. So I'm talking about the technicality 
totality of how in that scene when he's trying to fumble his explanation of how those people aren't black to him, Mm -hmm. he shows somehow in his face that it's a ridiculous thing. And then what immediately happens after he says, fuck Frank Sinatra, then it cuts to the famous things, which is too famous. I'm not even going to play it. I guess people hadn't heard people insulting other races in a movie like that. It's a direct address to camera and every single ethnicity has a moment of insulting every other ethnicity, including Stephen Park as the Korean deli mm-hmm. owner. Even anti-Semitism, even though I think there's no <laughs> there's no, no Jewish characters. No, yeah. in it. But that is represented and that's part of it. And, you know, I was reading a little bit about the criticism that Spike got with Mo Better Blues. Mm-hmm. I hadn't heard about this before, about actually John Turturro and Nick Turturro play a pair of Jewish characters. That, mm, uh, that's right. Oh, yeah. That, that was a like big controversy. And that was a big That was a big controversy. And it's interesting to read about. Certainly not in here, but yeah. I guess this is the same point that I made before in terms of everybody's got either blind spots or things that yeah. they sort of don't realize their own stumbling blocks. Well, it's kind of hard to look at the history of the music business and not understand where that trope is coming from. It's not like Spike just oh, made and that think, up, and he even but people are missing said, that in the oh, criticism. Yeah. Shout out to Miguel Sandoval, who plays Officer Ponty, who goes over the top in some of my favorite other kind of good bad movies like Clear and Present Danger and also Get Shorty. He plays a brilliant, terrifying drug lord. So I forgot that he was in this as the cop who kind of is trying to call off the cop who ends up choking and killing Radio Rahim. Right. But then is also the one who's like, let's get, let's him, get him in the car. Let's get the hell out of here. So everyone knows, you know, Spike Lee's father, Billy, was a longtime well-known jazz musician. And it was he that was friends with Ossie Davis and Ruby D. Right. And then Rosie Perez, it was interesting how she was cast in the movie. So there was a party for, I think she's got to have it in LA at a nightclub. Mm-hmm. And there was a woman dancing on top of a speaker cabinet that mm-hmm. was hired for the event. And Spike saw her kind of tottering on this cabinet and he was like, be careful. And she cursed him out in a voice. He said he had never heard a voice like that before. It was Rosie Perez and cast her in the movie. She'd never been in a movie before. And her sister lived four blocks from the set. Right. So she agreed to do it. You know, Spike's also been criticized for lack of dimensionality in female characters. Mm -hmm. And Rosie Perez has said she was uncomfortable during the filming of her nude scene with the ice cubes. And that's the reason that you don't see her face because she was crying. I even read with the story about him meeting her. She has a slightly different. Oh, she does. What does she say? She says, I wasn't dancing at the (laughs) thing. I was actually excoriating other women for allowing themselves to be exploited by dancing. Sounds like a fun person to have at parties. Well, that's, but that's, you know, that's her, uh, that's yeah, take. but that was her take on Interesting. it. Interesting. It also took her apparently eight hours. Well, I would say took her. It took them eight hours to film her intro, which is basically Amazing. four and a half minutes of her dancing to the entirety of Fight the Power. And she asked Spike what he wanted. And he was like, I want your anger. I want your passion, your resentment. I want you to be pissed off. And she started it and she was a professional and she did the choreography. And she was like, for an hour, I was all good. And by hour eight, she was just like, I think he was telling her to think about something from the movie, like mm-hmm. Howard Beach or something angry. And she's like, I was just thinking Spike Lee, Spike Lee, <laughs> Spike Lee, fuck you, motherfucker, <laughs> making me do eight hours. And then when she was in that mindset at the end, they got a take and she was like, how was that? And he was like, perfect. That's what he wanted all along. Great. But that's an iconic good. beginning to a movie. Yeah. And letting the whole song play the whole out. song her, play out. I'm no dance aficionado, but no? she's amazing. I, I mean, I'm, you've you been know, known. Dabble. You've been known to jeter in your prime. Sure. Maybe not now in your advanced decrepitude. What do you mean? I'm still two weeks away from my prime. Bullcasting Crew is brought to you by Two Different Guys on a Bench, a new comedy series from American Vandal star Ryan O'Flanagan. Two Different Guys on a Bench, where Ryan talks to Ryan on a bench. We keep the comedy simple, folks. Two Different Guys on a Bench videos can be found now on Facebook at Chuckler Comedy. 
Like and follow Chuckler for the latest and greatest short-form comedy videos. Chuckler. Original comedy. Delivered daily. Shall we move on to Rants and Raves? Yes. Can I go first? Always. My first rave is for, you know, I went to school in Ridgewood, New Jersey. Yes. My high school, Ridgewood High School. Allie Stroker was an alum also of that school. Okay. And she oh, right. won the uh, Tony Award for Best Supporting Actress in a musical. She was in Oklahoma. Yes. Which I think other than that was mostly snubbed, which is why the, I'm yes, probably taking a, the Tony seriously. It's been referred to as Woklahoma. Uh, oh, that's clever. That's Somewhat good. snidely. Well, she, uh, she- Because it's a very contemporary take. I hadn't seen Oklahoma, it's, but it's surprising how much of that was sort of in there. And I was- Well, how do you know like, if you haven't seen it? Well, I've seen this oh, production. you've seen this production. And I was saying that there are things that are in the script. There are lines which you can sort of gloss over and not make a big deal about in a, let's say, a right. more conventional production. But this one focused on some of the strange mm-hmm. things about the founding of America and about community. Actually, in some ways, there are a lot of similarities, I think, to this. Also, uh, I didn't watch the Tonys. Did you watch the Tony Awards? I watched a few minutes of it. Apparently, they chose a song selection from Oklahoma that uh-huh. was somewhat downcast or something. It's actually the guy that used to be in Spider-Man, Turn Out the Dark. No, Reeve he's Carney. In, he's in uh, Hadestown. Oh, that's a Hadestown number. Okay. So Michael Rydell, who's kind of, I think, a very funny, uh-huh. snarky theater writer for, of all things, the New York Post, he said that an investor in Hadestown had texted him during the telecast after that number. But apparently it involved Reeve Carney just looking at the camera and shouting something like destruction or devastation <laughs> or, or no, it was Yurdis. Yur, Yur, how do you say Yurdis? The mythological character of Eurydice. I don't know the You character. know, like, right. Eurydice and Orpheus. Oh, Eurydice. Yeah, Eurydice. Yes, got it. Sorry. Uh- <laughs> How do you say it? I always said it, Eurydice. No, Eurydice. Look, I'm looking at a weird, indecipherable phonetic thing here, and it looks like it supports my position. Well, see that? Look at this one. I wish I could go back in time. Look at, look at that one. Tell me that doesn't say Eurydice. Eurydice. You're absolutely that, right. right. So anyway, apparently, Reeve Carney was doing a thing where in the song, he just screams at the camera, Eurydice, Eurydice, Eurydice. And apparently, an investor in Hadestown texted Michael Rydell and said, I think our advanced sales just went down. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if I'm going to pay attention to the Tonys, it's for that. Right. Well, anyway, that's amazing for her. First uh, actress uh, in a wheelchair. Did you she send her a congratulatory text? Oh, I don't know her. Oh. I don't know her. So, uh, no. But it was still just exciting. Well, and I mean, uh, wanted to send a shout out for her. can say they made it in show business the way that you and she have. I don't know. A few others. Yeah. Yeah. Who else? Uh, like Robert Sean Leonard went to my high school, though he's a little bit older. Okay. All right. Do you have any other rants and rants? Um, did you hear the Justin Bieber tweet? Yes, but I don't understand it. I think that's my favorite part of it, that on Sunday night, that Justin Bieber, for no reason, and actually I think- Has he explained this tweet since? No, he hasn't as of Has yet. Has he been silent on Twitter since? Uh, actually, you know what? That I haven't looked up. All I know was that everybody's saying like, I sort of don't know why he would do this, but he challenged Tom Cruise to a fight in the octagon. Right. And it says, Tom, if you don't take this fight, you're scared and you will never Did leave it down. Did he misspell scared? He misspelled uh, your. Oh. Like, but Y-O-U-R. I thought he called him like a coward and misspelled it or something. <laughs> misspelled scarred or something. <laughs> I just love the fact that you'll never live it down. This is too bad because I like Justin Bieber. I'm mm-hmm. Team Bieber. And I root for him to succeed where so many others have failed as a child star and like navigating the level of fame that he's had in right. the internet generation is like, I'm not weeping for him. I'm just saying like, what the hell? Well, again, it's the mystery of it, of what prompted it that is so fantastic. And the fantastic. memes that it has and the memes inspired that it- have been brilliant where everyone, I saw someone the other 
other day was challenging Angela Lansbury to an octagon match. Yes. So, you know, hey, look, he's, yeah, he's doing his part was, the Everybody internet. has to challenge somebody 31 years, 31 older, years older than they are. That's very funny. One of the things I thought was very funny is uh, others thought he was crazy for wanting to challenge Cruz, quote, a legitimately crazy person, according mm. to some comments. I'm also team Cruz, so I can't take that side of the argument. And then it I is, like both. And then Conor McGregor said that he would be willing to host the fight. Go away, Conor. Uh, Go drown in a vat of your own whiskey. <laughs> oh, does he do he that? He has too? a whiskey now. Well, sure. I mean, listen, the life Prop of an MMA fighter that the doesn't, worst commercial, doesn't last very long. And trust me, that came across in his tweet. If Tom Cruise is man enough to accept this challenge, McGregor Sports and Entertainment will host the bout. Does Cruise have the sprouts to fight like he does in the movies? Stay tuned to find out. So and then dumb. he himself, he's like, and I challenge Mark Wahlberg. Oh, God. <laughs> We're all just living in the world of celebrity boxing. <laughs> exactly. Of all things, when the first celebrity boxing match happened, I really didn't think it would take off. No, yeah, well, it's taking some time. <laughs> this is going to be like how we missed the Tanya Harding life rights and someone made an <laughs> Oscar winning movie. And then the guy from celebrity boxing calls me every three weeks and tries to answer. I'm like, dude, I'm not in that business. And I'm like, I don't know these people anymore. <laughs> My one rave, Chris, is Ghetto Boys rapper Bushwick Bill passed away this week. And you know on Facebook when people reach for the farthest possible branch of connection between themselves and a dead celebrity they really didn't know? <laughs> I, I This is the first time I have a legitimate story involving someone who's passed away. Oh, fantastic. Which I can now share with our listeners. So way back in, God, it must have been, I don't know, 98, 99, 2000, I was working at VH1 as a producer, and we were either working on a series called, it was either 100 Greatest Artists, 100 Most Shocking Moments in Rock and Roll, which it might have been. It might have been about his shooting that led to that iconic album cover on Ghetto Boys, We Must Be Stopped, where the other two rappers were wheeling Bill into the hospital, and he's talking on early model cellular telephone with his shot eye hanging off. We went down to, I want to say Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to film an interview with Bill. I fly down to Baton Rouge and we had rented a old out of work theater as the interview location. We had a pretty big crew. We had wardrobe, we had makeup, and we had a couple of cameras. And brilliantly, Bill didn't show up for 13 hours after the call time, which is still a record in my brief career as a producer of those types of shows interviewing celebrities. Did you ever think like, oh my gosh, I hope he's okay? No, because there was no, like other members of his team were there. And this was never presented like oh. a problem. It was just like, yeah, we don't know where he is, yeah. but he'll get here eventually. Like, should we pack up and do this another day? No, he's coming. Just don't know when. 13 hours transpire. Uh, and then Bill finally rolls in. I don't even remember what time it was. I mean, it must have been six o'clock in the morning or something. He was clearly in a refreshed state, shall uh -huh. we say. And then he proceeded to sit down. And I'm thinking, oh, God, this is going to be a disaster. But he proceeded to sit down and give one of those interviews where you're kind of like, oh my God, this guy's crazy at first. But then you're like, he's a genius. Mm -hmm. Like his comments were so insightful and so hilariously turned and so unique to his own kind of specific POV. Then when the interview was concluded, he asked me to drive him to Houston, Texas. Now, I'm from the Northeast. I don't really have a concept of how far Baton Rouge, Louisiana is from Houston. It turns out it's only like three hours and 50 minutes okay. or something. But to me, it felt like right, it must this, have been a days long drive. You didn't have like a smartphone. This you was could pretty look smartphone. It up. Yeah. In my mind, it was like, this must take several days to drive right. from Louisiana to Houston, Texas. And one of the great regrets of my life is that I didn't just get in the car and go. That would be a screenplay we could write oh, right absolutely. now and sell. How about, a, how about a white TV producer goes on the road with a hip hop midget, because Bill was a little person. Okay. And on their road trip, learns a little something about himself and about preconceived notions. Green book, but now. 
Um, but then, even yeah. though it was then, but it was but comparatively now. So Bushwick Bill, man. Shall we move on to Latchkey TV? Sure. Hello? Uh, here I have a TV guide <laughs> with a beautiful wow. honey-colored picture of Cheryl Ladd wearing beautiful. a yellow sweater on a yellow background with her yellow hair, but her teeth are sparkling What's she white. promoting there? Cheryl Ladd's battled... Oh, she's promoting something that Sam Elliott is also in called A Death in California. Oh. Based on a true story. Yeah. He killed her fiancé, raped her, tried to frame her for murder, and she loved him. Wait, she loved him still? Well, after you all, you gotta that? watch it to find it. What the fuck? I mean, I don't know if it's like a Stockholm syndrome thing <laughs> or if they were involved before. Wow. Uh, but that that sounded pretty awesome. Jeez. Uh, so that's what she's promoting. Sam Elliott, huh? Sam Elliott. So uh, I would get home from school mm-hmm. at about three o'clock. I would probably try Nova for a second mm. because it has a lighthearted science quiz with actress Jane Alexander, ABC science editor Jules Bergman, mm. and educator Marva Collins. But it's a repeat. So Sounds I'd like probably, a snoozer, Chris. <laughs> I don't know. So what are you attracted by in that? You know what it is? Lighthearted quiz, mm. even though if it's about that science, like which it. I don't know much from science, but I would be like, I don't know, I'll guess, yeah. and I'll guess a few, and then it's probably- like the Ishtar of science right. quizzes. <laughs> and then I'd switch over to it's Scooby-Doo, probably. Quiz. At 4 p.m., I think I would go to the game show, Body Language, only because it's got a powerhouse, a mm. uh, couple Ooh, powerhouse tell guests. Me, I love, I'm going to guess uh, Charles Nelson Riley is one of them. No. Oh. How about Paul Lind? No. But oh, close? I mean, no, sort of. <laughs> yes, actually, wait, no, one of them, yes, sort of is. Close. Sort of is or is? Sort of is close. Oh. I mean, you say close? Glenn Close. <laughs> uh, got it in three. Uh, no, it's Phyllis Diller ah. and Richard Simmons. Oh, sure. And I think for body language, he'd probably be great. I, I don't remember body language. Is that like a uh, charades-esque ripoff? That's my, that's the- Body uh, language game show. Mark Goodson, hosted by Tom Kennedy. I'd never heard of that. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I, I do enjoy game shows. Sure. Especially when, you know, you have somebody that you recognize and watch them do something that's a little bit different than what you expected. Sure. And then after that, I think I'd switch over to I Love Lucy. Mm. The Ricardos decide to visit the Mertzes in New York just when the Mertzes- go to see the Ricardos. Oh, boy, pre-cell phone. That kind of mix exactly, up Exactly, that kind of thing would happen, exactly. So that would be later on the run where the Mertzes moved away. Yes. Right. But it did still star Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Yes. So do you think they just, like, occupied each other's apartments or something? And they probably snooped. Oh, I'm sure uh, Lucy snooped. Well, of course. You think they, had, they probably had keys, right? Yeah. That's the kind of thing you have to write in a screenplay, like, in that era. You're like, how do we indicate that they have each other's keys? Like, you need a line of dialogue. It's like, how do we get in? Wow, oh, I still have the key from when Ethel gave it left to me. The, yeah. yeah. So that I would watch. And then after that, people don't give enough credit to the people's court. Love Wapner. Are you kidding? Because Def- well, definitely Wapner. As a definitely um, judge Wapner. as a precursor to reality television. Yeah, I remember. Like that's what I loved don't, about it was don't. it felt like crackly. Like you don't oh, know yeah. what's gonna do that opening. Don't take the law into your own hands. <laughs> take them to court. <laughs> do you think that's a response to Bernard Getz? <laughs> you know, <laughs> don't become a vigilante. Yeah. A case involving a blouse missing from a dry cleaners. Mm. Judge Joseph A. Wapner presides. Definitely Judge Wapner. I'm going to keep doing that until someone writes in and says, please tell Jason to stop <laughs> referring. Just to encourage, we want that kind of listener get, interaction. I'm trying to get some. 
Trying to, yeah. Instead of all this, the spam email that I go through every day on the account, which <laughs> is its own sad existence. Look, at least if the bots would just subscribe. Look, if you're listening out there, is it so hard? Just get in touch. I mean, Christ. Come on. I mean, anything. We're not asking if you, you know, insult us if you want. I mean, just let us know where you are. 5 p.m., I would switch to Star Trek. Which one? I just watched a couple great Star Treks the other day. Oh, yeah? So, yeah. Spock, Leonard Nimoy, inexplicably... First of all, Spock never does anything inexplicably. Well, it's through the lens of some of the other characters inexplicably. Like, he has a reason for doing it. They just don't understand it. Yes. And this, well, you'll see. Spock inexplicably abducts the Enterprise's former commander, locks the ship on a course for a forbidden planet, and turns himself in for a court-martial. First of two parts. Two-parter. Sounds good. So I think this is probably the Menagerie. That's not, is that the Menagerie? Well, I think that's the only Star Trek two-parter. And that I know. No, because we just saw another Pike. We just saw another two-parter. Yeah. Well, Spock abducts Commander Pike, locks. Yeah, you're right. That is the menagerie. Well, that's considered the greatest episode of Star Trek ever. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'd always heard that the City on the Edge of Forever, written by Harlan Ellison. Well, you know, I think both of them are classics. Fair enough. Then I might, I probably, I've never seen an episode of Vegas. Oh, Dantana? I, like, I always knew it existed, but I just never, I don't know. Robert, uh, too glitzy. Robert Urich. Yeah. So I probably wouldn't watch it, even though a crooked land developer terrorizes a feisty old lady who threatens to expose his shady practices. Sure. I mean, that does sound great. Yeah. Instead, I'd probably watch Bewitched. Because mm. Samantha turns a straight chimp into a man. Again with the animals on Bewitched. <laughs> Somebody must have had like a performing animals yeah. ranch. I think a producer was that's married like the to an animal third time that's trainer. come up and there's been an animal themed thing. Yeah. Well, then I'd probably do some, you know, homework and, and have dinner with the family. Nerd alert. Then I would come back at 7 p.m. promptly for the A-team because I loved mm, the A-team. Sure. That seemed almost like superheroes. B.A. Baracus. You know, everybody now knows we got superheroes everywhere. Yeah. But in the 80s, What's they the were not as fun. A fishing expedition turns into a manhunt when Colonel Decker, Lance Legault, shows up at the team's lakeside retreat. Wait, we read this one in a recent episode. That exact- I hate to break it to you. They're in syndication because I saw another one that I was like, oh, I recognize that log. Or line. unless we read that in an episode that we didn't use. Remember it the episode have- that never was? I've already gotten over it. Don't remind me because okay. I'm over I'm, I can't remember it, so it doesn't bother me if or you tell me. Or is it possible that we have one from the same week? Well, I mean, no, it's probably a repeat. Or it could be a repeat. I didn't know that the A-team had a lakeside retreat. Sure. I mean, I thought they were on the run from the law, like living rough and underground. Well, I mean, they probably holed up at an A-team. At a retreat, at yeah. a lakeside retreat. That sounds pretty good. Uh, though, if I got bored with that, I would tune over to Benson, which is a comedy that I loved. Sure. Uh, the governor claims he saw Benson beamed aboard a UFO for a short time during their golf game. <laughs> Benson has jumped the shark, <laughs> yeah, ladies and gentlemen. That's definitely last season. That is last season. <laughs> They're like, they got this and they're like, what? And then at eight o'clock, I would watch Fall Guy. Oh, yeah. Great show. Uh, Love Fall Guy. Yeah, me too. Boy, Chris, I didn't know you'd be such a sort of action TV show guy. Oh, yeah. It's kind of funny. I think of you more as like watching Nureyev and flautists. That's for the weekends when I really (laughs) cut loose. Fall Guy was great. Three Hollywood uh, stunt performers, right? Stunt yeah, people? Lean Majors was the stuntman. <laughs> All right, so that's why the And then he the has his friend who was yeah, like another it. stuntman. So and he's then- like, you need the guy who falls. Get me Lee Majors. <laughs> oh, yeah, that show was good. I and mean, he had that truck. Not good, but great. You know. Yes, you're right. You're right. I stand corrected. <laughs> A teenage girl, Legina Lickabill, infatuated with Colt, Lee Majors, stows away in his truck, impeding his efforts to find a diamond thief. Did you say Legina? Yeah. K 
capital L, little A, capital G, E, little E, little N, little A. Like Lawrence Luckinbill? Uh, Lookabill. Lookabill. And then at 10 p.m., this was the kind of thing, because they would only be specials. Mm-hmm. So when, as a kid, if this would ever come on, yeah. I would be all about it because of my own sure. uh, modernist tendencies. 10 p.m., all-time greatest TV censored bloopers. Wow. Tim Conway, Bob, Captain Kangaroo, Keyshen, and Deidre Hall joined Dick Clark for a compilation of clips from seven bloopers shows. Mm. So this is a clip show. A clip show <laughs> about bloopers from clip clips. shows. Yeah. Uh, among those seen are Dick Cavett, Donna Dixon, Ron Howard, Alan King, Vicki Lawrence, Don Rickles, Connie Selica, Peter Sellers, and Dick Van Dyke. I would definitely watch the hell out of that. Oh, yeah. I remember like first seeing yeah. a special. Like I had no idea what a blooper was. Oh, yeah. Blooper is amazing. Oh, it was, yeah. It's the best. Now, we, of course, we live in this embarrassment of riches we where do. we can find bloopers and outtakes yeah. everywhere. Right. Well, that's why for many years, all the shows that we produce here at Meeting House Productions, we would always do outtakes over our credit beds. Yes. Because I just think they're always hilarious. Yeah. And it allows you, to, you, the viewer, to peer a little bit behind the curtain. And get to know. Maybe we should do outtakes here. Like all the good shit that I say that you cut out. Yeah, maybe. Because there's probably so much of it. Oh, yes. Don't oh, patronize <laughs> me, Chris. Would you like to move on to headlines? Sure. Headlines. I only have one. Great. This is the headline. Car Seat Headrest announces new live album. Now, when I read this, I thought, oh, so they're putting like smart speakers in car seat headrests to like pump information at you while you're driving, you know, like in an idiocracy type manner or like a Blade Runner. We need more advertising. But no, turns out there's a band called Car Seat Headrest. That's the name of the band. And they are announcing their new live album. I'm so glad. I don't know whether to be relieved or pissed off, but I'm irritated. (laughs) Right. Right. I'm. I guess it's sort of relieving to not have, again, one last refuge of silence, which is your car seat headrest, not be dominated by advertising. And yet at the same time, the fact that we live in a world where there is a band called Car Seat Headrest. headrest. But it'd also be funny to live in a world where minutia of, like, let's say there were smart speakers in a car seat headrest. What if we got hyper local with news blasts so that, like, the fact that that occurred in someone's car was something that you now had to deal with in your timeline? You know what I mean? That would be sort of like a dystopian news environment. Listen, I think that's a great idea. That's I mean, like it's a Black Mirror episode. It's both a— Chris you know, tied his shoelace. It is both you know? a uh, great <laughs> dystopian thing, but also you could get money for that. Let's, you could get money for that kind of micro-targeting. Got to get that money, like Mookie said. Yeah. Well, I came across the hard car seat headrest story after I was trying to understand. There was an article that somebody said, like, Spotify invents— your car's radio. Spotify is putting out a custom playlist for you that's basically what we used to do in the car, which is like maybe listening to a little news, then listen to yeah. a little music, then maybe having some podcast excerpts. So now they're putting it all together and they've, of course, in tech style, written a whole treatise on how groundbreaking the concept of flipping around on the dial is. And they've just done it for you. They've just done it for you, which, of course, it's no longer flipping around on the dial. Which I'm both irritated by, but also wondering, how can we get full cast and crew up in there? You know what I'm saying? Because we're on Spotify, listeners. So go find us wherever you can and listen to us all the time. All the time. By now, we've got, there should be enough content out there that you can have us on 24-7. This is going to be episode 37. Lucky number Should we take like a break in some episode? Like, you know, when you put it on, it's through like season one, episode 37. Should at some point we just arbitrarily decide like, maybe welcome back to the second season of. Could be. But I think in podcasting, you just want to give people the new stuff every week without any breaks. You don't want to like arbitrarily stop down. I mean, I mean, you might. 
Because you have to edit the damn things. But, uh, well, I mean, there are, you know, hiatuses. Do yeah, but happen. if you do a hiatus, then you lose your audience. Think about That's it. That's true. They might, they might do something else. Like, people or might listen might. to these two jokers, but, like, if you <laughs> give them a reason to not listen to us for four weeks, they're probably not going to come yeah. back. That's what I'm saying. You're basically going to have to do this for the rest of your life. <laughs> and... <laughs> We will be here gumming at each other. I was, hey, look, I was brought up Catholic. I'm sure I sinned somewhere. Uh, <laughs> so it all makes sense. That's all I have for you, Chris. Well, fantastic. Well, until next week, keep on keeping on. And I hope you get to call out sometime soon. Thanks for listening to Full Cast and Crew. I uh, just wanted to remind everyone to subscribe if you haven't already, so you'll get a new episode every Thursday. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at, at fullcastandcrew, or find us on Facebook.